0: Hi FreshEd listeners, it's Will. I wanted to tell you about a new project we're launching called Fresh Ed Flux, which aims to encourage new voices in education podcasting. Are you a graduate student who wants to develop, produce, and deliver a creatively complex, multi-voiced, globally rich, narrative style episode for Fresh Ed Flux? If so, we want to hear from you. We are interested in putting together an episode that will showcase your deep dive storytelling which is informed by cutting-edge ideas and issues in education broadly defined. Your episode will be made for an English-speaking audience, but could include other languages that have been translated into English, and it will be between 20 and 30 minutes long. If you are the successful candidate, you will be awarded a stipend of 2500 US dollars, and your episode will be aired on Fresh Ed next year. I'm really excited about this project, and I encourage you to get in touch with your ideas. You can find more details at freshedpodcast.com flux. Again, that's freshedpodcast.com flux. Now on with today's show. This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brenn. Today, we take a critical look at numbers. Think about it. Numbers are everywhere in education from grades, to impact scores, and to rankings. My guests today, Nelly Pietova and Rebecca Bowden, have recently co-edited a special issue for the journal International Studies in Sociology of Education that looks at the ambiguities of the governance of education through data. Here's Nelly explaining why this is so important.
1: It's not enough to look into how numbers are used once they are made available for political decisions or in the public, it's really important to look into the processes of data production. What are the values? What are the worldviews? Who are the actors who are behind the numbers? What are all the different reductions and interpretations that need to be made in order to produce even a maybe a seemingly kind of simple
2: and easy number?
0: And here's Rebecca, on how subjective numbers end up creating objective reality.
2: The thing about numbers is that they are always subjectively determined, and it means that those in power can determine and shape the numbers that are produced, the numbers that are used, and they are used ultimately to control and direct, to steer at a distance.
0: Nelly Pietova is an associate professor at Tampere University in Finland. Where Rebecca Bowden is the research director and professor at the new social research program. Nellie Piatova and Rebecca Bowden, welcome to Fresh Ed.
1: That's fantastic. Hello, and it's great to be here. Hi, Will, and thanks for inviting us. It's great to be here.
0: So, I want to talk about numbers today. Uh, And so, when I think of numbers in education, my mind typically goes to grades. And often, I have this anxiety about grades because of all the bad marks I used to get and tests and how I used to hate tests growing up. In education, are are numbers found sort of beyond grades?
1: Well, if I start, uh, thanks, uh, Will, for this question. Um, Actually, in our special issue, the starting point is that we can find lots of numbers now in education way beyond school grades. And um, the type of numbers that we're speaking about in the special issue are um, rankings of schools and universities both national and international standardized tests impact factors uh, that we as scholars are often monitoring and uh, being afraid of also uh, publication counts work time allocation models so actually Uh, What we try to to map in the special issue is how the types of numbers that education is now uh, producing and is kind of a target of have proliferated greatly. And they're produced by state agencies, by international actors, by commercial actors. So lots of different numbers way beyond school grades. And it was funny actually how you mentioned fear of grades in your question. (laughs) Because what we are also seeing in, in studies is that numbers are far from kind of rational and empty of feelings and emotions. But actually these organizations and professionals that are being increasingly controlled through numbers are also experiencing different emotional states that numbers produce in people or in institutions and even countries, right? We talk about peace shock, for instance.
0: And I would imagine that this, these feelings are, are never uh, or rarely positive. It's usually anxiety, fear, you know, feelings of despair in many ways.
2: Well, I actually will. I, I, sometimes I disagree on that. I mean, I'm, um, I think numbers can quite often be used by people to massage egos, to boost careers, to... Um, in the use of kind of like competition in order to gain advantage. So said so numbers aren't always about fear. Sometimes they're kind of exploited for some kind of you know perverse delights.
0: Yeah, right. Like how many how many Twitter likes I get, or how many how many downloads
2: exactly, or how many Google Scholar likes you get, or yeah, yeah, right. precisely.
0: And so it does. It does fit into ego and sort of boosting ego, and yeah. but it's sort of this up and down thing, I would imagine, because there is a lot of anxiety before you get that reward of, you know, a million downloads.
2: Exactly. I, th- I think in terms of numbers being everywhere in education, I think the fact that Nelly and I are working together on this project is indicative of what's happened, because Nelly works in education studies. But I'm actually a professor of accounting and what's known as a critical accountant, which means I'm interested in how numbers are used in regimes of control and accountability. And I've been working on education, particularly higher education, for the last 20 years, watching this spillover of all the accounting control techniques that are very familiar in the mainstream commercial world into education the very fact that Nellie and I work together um, so happily and you know it's been such a generative exercise is absolutely indicative of of the, the invasion of numbers and the way in which they've escaped into this domain.
0: So how has it changed over, you know, 20 years or, or even further back? I mean, how have these regimes of control through numbers changed in higher education or education generally, you know, in the last 20, 30 years?
2: Well, for me, historically, what, what's interesting is that as the UK in particular, let's take the UK as an example, as it's kind of neoliberalized, It's become increasingly important to engender competition between schools to teachers have become untrusted subjects, so they have to be controlled and directed. And there's a whole kind of regime of almost kind of tailorization of education in all of its aspects, a concern for value for money, a concern for rankings, a concern with PISA. And as all of that's emerged, what you've seen is the importation of technologies of numbers in to actually kind of support and promote all of that. So that's the, that's the kind of negative side of the numbers. And I think that's certainly in higher education, that's very evident over the last 20 years. I suspect it's been happening even earlier in, in schools, but that's in the UK. I mean, Nelly might have something else to say about Finland, which is obviously a very different educational context.
1: What is interesting, and and if we get back to your example of a student being afraid of of bad grades, I think that's a really good point to to also kind of see what are all the changes that have happened. So now we have not only the student being afraid of uh, bad grades, but we have also, for instance, schools in the UK or in the US that are essentially anxious about having bad grades or bad numbers on standardized tests mandated nationally or on a state level, because with bad numbers, they essentially um, are at risk of being closed down or their teachers being made redundant or the salaries of the teachers being reduced. So the kind of consequences that the numbers now carry for different actors in the educational sphere have become much more severe, I think, than they have ever been before. The other change that we can talk about is also who are the producers of numbers, because kind of historically, we would see state bureaucracy being the main producer of a particular types of numbers that were used to make some political decisions, but not kind of taking numbers necessarily as the sole source of those political decisions. But now we have a proliferation of actors producing numbers, as I said also earlier, commercial actors, international and national actors who also make business, right, and kind of build their reputation as they produce numbers. And also numbers are becoming the kind of main currency of political debates and decision-making, kind of taking space away from other kinds of evidence, uh, qualitative evidence, for instance, or case studies and so on. So these are just some of the changes that I think are really important to mention here.
0: Why have numbers sort of gained so much power and appeal to policymakers and business And school officials, like, you know, I just, I can't understand why they took on such a role that they do today. How did that happen? Or why did that happen?
2: My own interpretation of that is that numbers have the advantage of appearing inherently objective and accurate and kind of scientific. But the reality is that they are always subjectively determined. So it's an ultimate kind of power tool, really because you can make up a number to demonstrate whatever you like, but what you're able to demonstrate is you're presenting the absolute accurate objective truth. Yes. So you know, there's an accounting joker like, you know, like why, why do people talk about creative accounting? All accounting is creative. <laughs> the thing about numbers is they, they, they are always subjectively determined, and it means that those in power can determine and shape the numbers that are produced, the numbers that are used, and they are used ultimately to control and direct, a, to steer at a distance.
0: Can you give an example of how numbers or what a type of number is in education that is subjectively determined?
2: So numbers that are subjectively determined in, in higher education, something that we'll all be familiar with, those of us who work in higher education, is, is journal rankings. So the idea that some journals are better journals than other journals. Now, if you think about the processes that determine what makes something a uh, you know, four star journal in, in UK terms or a three star one or a UFO one, two or three in Finnish terms is always decided subjectively by panels of people who then kind of disseminate this as if this is a kind of like accurate, objective, scientific measure of whether something's good or not. Or we might use uh, impact factors of journals all of which are subjectively determined, what goes into that number, what characterises it. Mm. So what we end up with at the end is, is a set of rankings around journals, a, a number attached to them, which then translates into some kind of objective reality in the minds of, of often of the managers of universities and governments who fund universities, who then use those numbers to say, okay, you, you you produce this, you can have this much money. You published in these lesser ranked journals, you can have less money. So that that's the way in which these things get entirely, I, yeah, I'd say entirely fabricated to be quite honest. Hmm. But it becomes a number. And there are consequences that flow from that number. And it's a number determined by those those in power, basically.
0: Huh. And so it's, I mean, it, it sounds like what you're saying is that numbers sort of hide all of these subjective political decisions that were made to arrive at that number. By just having a simple number, we sort of lose sight of everything that took to make that number.
1: Exactly. And I think this is one of the real big points that we also want to make in the special issue and that authors make throughout the collection is that it's not enough to use uh, to look into how numbers are used once they are made available for political decisions or in the public it's really important to look into the processes of data production what are the values, what are the worldviews, who are the actors who are behind the numbers, what are all the different reductions and interpretations that need to be made in order to produce even a, maybe a seemingly kind of simple and easy number. There are lots of different processes that need to be um, disentangled. And I think that's a kind of a big question for researchers also to address. Yeah.
2: So if you look at something like journal rankings by impact factors or citation counts, like who decided that the number of times something was cited made it a better journal? Mm. I mean, that's, that's a nice, neat, encapsulated kind of question to ask about how these things are subjectively determined. Mm. And of course, I would argue with things like impact factors, which is based on citations, it was, it was the publishers themselves who decided kind of, you know, to, to set those things up and which journals to include, which tend to be their journals. So they promote their journals so that they decide to cut, start counting citations in their own journals and therefore demonstrate that their journals are very important.
0: Mm, right.
2: And we all suddenly start accepting that, you know, the number of times something cited becomes a measure of its of its value.
0: And then it ultimately ends up having that sort of value in reality it sort of does impact exactly and i guess that's the the sort of next question then is is about you know how do these numbers sort of change and impact the way in which people and schools operate and exist you know i think rebecca you just gave an, an example of impact factors but you know more generally how can we begin to think about this sort of affective nature of numbers on people and institutions
1: well, I was thinking about, um, for instance, if we, if we count PISA or we start from PISA, right? We know how much uh, we see debate in, on education across countries that is very much shaped by PISA scores that these countries have gained in a particular year. So it's almost like, if I think about Russia, for instance, now one of the political objectives of the current government is to get Russia higher on every international ranking of um, learning achievements than that there exist in the world. And uh, that's a kind of uh, a goal that I think very much shifts attention away from some of the problems that there exist on a local level. In a country as big as Russia, you can find elite schools in big urban areas, you can find very poorly resourced uh, rural schools, you can find schools catering to very different groups of children with different languages, with different cultural backgrounds. And it seems that the conversation is now kind of silenced on the very contextual nature of education, not only across countries, but also within countries. And attention is shifted on how do we produce better numbers? (laughs) So, and as numbers, we know they simplify, they reduce reality. So basically they don't really tell us what is happening in particular schools and how can we address the very specific needs of those children or teachers so for me the consequence is that even though kind of pisa or other big assessments say that they are good helpers in making political decisions i'm honestly afraid that as we focus on solely on these numbers we are ought to make bad political decisions because we don't really understand the reality in schools anymore as it is experienced by teachers and students. Mm.
2: Maria Nedever and I some some years ago looked at the evolving of of this kind of process in in a a slightly more structural way. So we looked particularly around science policy and also science funded funding for science research in higher education. And you can almost see a kind of three-stage process. So you see it at the start at high level policy making Decisions about the implementation of policy start to be attached to numbers. So people become fixated on numbers. So Tony Blair in the UK deciding that the participation rate must be 50% in higher education is a nice example. So numbers start to drive policy. And then that's used almost like a set of kind of strings on a puppet down to, to universities where they start sort of saying, well, Yeah, if you get a 4.2 in this, you can have this extra tranche of funding. So it becomes a very kind of fine-tuned way of steering organisations at a distance by government. And it looks like you're leaving universities and colleges and schools as very independent, but in fact, they're entirely tied by the funding streams that come with it Hmm. with these numerical indicators. So you've got a numerical indicator if you reach this target level, you can have this funding, Right. Um, so that's the second stage is what happens to the kind of management and leadership of organisations, of individual schools, colleges, universities, who start to be driven by these numbers that have come down from government. And then the third stage, which Maria Nedever and I kind of thought about some time ago, but actually kind of um, wasn't really evident then, but it has become evident over the last 15 years, is that the numbers start to Inhabit the psyche of individuals within organizations. So it drives the culture. It drives the thinking. People, right down to you know small children in school, see their see their value and their worth and their attainment in terms of the numbers.
0: These key performance indicators, the KPIs.
2: Exactly. Yeah. 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 So people. You know, uh, university staff will see their value in terms of how many, how many four-star papers do they have for the ref. Mm. Children will see their um, performance in terms of their exam grades. Yeah. Teachers will, will judge themselves and almost kind of inhabit this number infrastructure. Mm. And it can almost blind anybody to anything else because there's no thinking outside the box. So there's that loss, as, as Nelly said, of all that contextual Stuff around what are we doing and what's our purpose because the purpose comes to be to meet the numbers, to have good numbers.
0: Uh, when I, you know, thinking back on my own history in, in, say, primary school, when I really hated taking tests because I did so poorly, I think one of the reasons was because I thought I wasn't smart when I did poorly, right? The number sort of said, oh, you don't know this content or how the question was asked, and therefore you did bad. And therefore, you're not smart. And I can, you know, you start evaluating yourself um, through this one single number on, you know, one single test in the month. And you know that had some serious. I think it had serious effects because you know I sort of hated schooling and learning, and you know it had these sort of residual effects, all based on on these numbers, as you say.
1: Hmm. I think maybe one more consequence that I also want to to bring up is um, when numbers carry such aura of authority and kind of uh, have become the primary source of information and knowledge for decision making, what does it mean to questions and issues that haven't been quantified that are not easily representable through numbers Mm. so does it mean that then these issues don't exist or we can't discuss it in public because we can't present them through numbers when numbers have you know, the highest political currency. Mm. Because even though it seems like our world is saturated with numbers, there are still many issues that are not represented. There are lots of missing data because you know powerful actors who are able to produce numbers and the production of numbers is expensive haven't been interested in quantifying particular issues such as well for instance um maybe i i just bring one example of from finland now just maybe not to say what is not quantified but to show the hike between numbers and other evidence so this uh, Black Lives Matter discussion has also had very good repercussions even in Finland here and and in the media, they've started to discuss also the incidents of racism and discrimination in schools by using uh, some very personal and painful accounts of students. But then a journalist came in with a PISA example saying that, well, have you seen that our success in PISA is actually a little bit critical because if we look at the success of students with immigrant backgrounds, uh, their scores on literacy tests are much lower. So suddenly I felt that this debate became much more important in the media because also the big data, the big numbers could be used. Hmm. And so it was almost like these personal accounts are interesting and important, but it's only with big numbers that we can really make this a big issue. That needs
0: like legitimize it,
1: legitimize it, and really make it an issue that requires political attention.
0: Huh? How interesting.
1: So I think here, sort of, it's really worrying if numbers kind of eat other evidence, basically, (laughs) or make other evidence less important or less trustworthy, maybe.
2: Yeah. But there's also a danger in here, in in that example you just gave, Nelly, which I I suspect isn't likely to to manifest itself in Finland, but might well in other countries, which is that people start saying, you know, we can't be taking immigrants because they'll be adversely affecting our numbers. So, for instance, UK, well, English schools in particular, have quite a bad reputation for um, permanently excluding or off-rolling students who are not going to do well in the public examinations when they're 16 because that become, that's a major um, means of ranking those schools is how well the kids do in those six public examinations they take when they're 16. Huh. So there's been a, quite a few scandals around schools deliberately seeking to off-roll those kids by encouraging their parents to so-called homeschool them or by excluding them because they twist the school's data in the wrong direction. So, yeah, and it becomes, and, and Nellie's right, I think, it becomes very hard in those contexts to, to hold on to the humanity of, of what we're doing and the humanity of what education systems are supposed to deal with. Because in a sense, the students, whether they children or, or university undergraduates, become just kind of the kind of site of number creation. And that's all they become and they stop being real people. And hmm. it takes a lot of commitment on the basis of schools in the UK to start saying, well, do you know what? We'll, we'll take tra- traveller children. We'll take difficult children. We'll take children with special educational needs, even though that means that's going to drive our numbers down because they see the mission in a different way. And, and I think it's a very grave danger in a lot of higher education and a lot of school education that we, we in a sense, lose the sight of what education is to be about, and it becomes about the production of these good numbers.
0: So you've, you know, this special issue that you put out was probably written by the authors and yourself before the coronavirus pandemic hit. And now today you know, six months into the pandemic, numbers seem to be everywhere from positivity rates and death rates and the r not value. And, you know, it just seems like we are saturated every day, at least on my news feed, as I scroll through the news, it's numbers, it's all these charts. You know, thinking about what you've learned through this special issue, you know, how how do you approach all of these COVID-19 numbers that we see so regularly on on the news and in the newspapers and on social media?
1: Well, should I start?
0: Yes. (laughs) Sure, sure.
1: Well, I'm sure there are many ways in which I think COVID has taught us a lot about not only numbers, but also the meaning of education and whether or not the role and the meaning of education are possible to capture through numbers. So for me, it has been really interesting to, to follow the debate here in Finland uh, where a lot of attention was brought to the issue of uh, the social life of schools, the, the social meaning of schools in terms of catering for children from unstable backgrounds, providing warm meals on an everyday basis, providing the kind of safe environment with, a, with an adult that they can trust. And of course, also, we can ask if school means so many other things apart from just learning and the kind of the results of learning that we can easily quantify in tests. How is it that we can bring back or enrich and diversify our debate on education? So it's almost like numbers, as they became kind of one of the main means to represent and discuss education, I hope that now we realize that there are many aspects of school life that are not possible to represent through numbers. So I hope that this is the kind of uh, critique of numbers that also we will be able to develop on the basis of these experiences, right, that we have all as as parents with children at home, as, um, I guess, social workers and teachers. So we understand, I think, now the much broader meaning of schooling in society is way beyond standardized tests and learning.
0: That's, I mean, that's a very hopeful sort of outlook as to what's happening. Rebecca, do you share, you know, Nelly's sort of hopeful spirit when it comes to numbers and, and our current moment of COVID?
2: I, I do for Finland. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I'm in a rather interesting position in that I, I shuttle back and forth between Finland and the UK. And I spent the first part of the pandemic in Finland and the second part in in the UK. And I suppose I'd, I'll make my remarks about England rather than the United Kingdom here, because I think experiences in, in Wales and Scotland have been so different, but I think what COVID has done for education in the UK is expose the fragility of schools and indeed of universities in many, many ways. Um, I think COVID's exposed the fragility of almost every institution in the UK to be quite frank, but schools we've now got a much heightened awareness of the appalling child poverty rates in the UK which came about because of things like schools were closed so kids weren't getting their free school lunch. And then there was a realisation about how so many families in poverty, some 4 million children living in poverty. So that, that became exposed. So numbers around child poverty became exposed. The numbers in terms of the finances for universities has become a huge issue because of the realisation, because of the marketization of higher education in the UK, if the students don't come, the universities don't get their fees and the universities go broke. So now we have a very significant number of universities in England, in particular, in quite dire financial straits, an awareness around the number of um, overseas students in the UK. So there's been a really interesting kind of teasing out and an exposure of the way in which the education system works by... All of these really, really awful, distressing numbers that have come through. And, and I personally hope that's, that has a really kind of important public pedagogical role in that people, you know, finally realise that sort of 30% of children in British schools are living in poverty, will make them think much more contextually about why schools aren't doing better. So I think there's, there's some kind of appreciation and understanding of, of those kinds of issues. On a more general level, I think would say this is an accountant. I, 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 find all of the COVID coverage has probably had an important public pedagogical aspect in terms of people's understanding of statistics and numbers, and and an appreciation of how they work. And you kind of watch on Facebook much more intelligent kind of discussion and analysis of of numbers. And a much more kind of critical questioning of them as well. Mm. So little incidents like, you know, the the British government sort of counting items of personal protective equipment, they counted um, gloves individually rather than than as pairs. Because obviously we only have one-handed nurses and doctors. So little incidents like that gives a kind of much greater public awareness of how, you know, there are lies, damn lies, and statistics. As Daryl Huff wrote kind of 50 years ago, so that in itself, I'm hoping, will have a kind of spillover effect. There's a huge concern about what's happening to children in Britain um, and a complete and utter kind of unwillingness on the part of government to engage with, with the, the psychological and the social effects of the trauma that British children have been through, much worse than, than Finnish children because it's, it's been so hard here. And yet yet government is kind of clinging to its kind of set number things. So my partner, who's a school teacher, has just told me on the radio was was a former head of Ofsted, which is the government school inspection agency, saying, Well, children have missed lessons since March, well obviously. So there is stuff that they haven't been taught that they need to be taught. So teachers should give up their school holidays in order to help these children catch up. And it's it's almost as if children are these kind of empty vessels to be filled up with facts, which will then be objectively judged and they can be graded. Mm. And an abs- so this, this is where numbers leads you. It sort of dehumanizes children in particular. Yeah. And and turns them into these kind of units that you count, and a complete and utter kind of blindness to the fact that these are kind of human beings. And that I think is is one of the most distressing things that's come out. So so that tension has come out. There's all sort of raw emotion amongst the public around what's happening to their kids and they can see the mental health difficulties of kids. Yeah. And a government absolutely totally committed to this this rule by numbers.
0: It's a fascinating tension as you say and I think you know it's not over yet. Um and I think we'll we'll have to sort of monitor this and see Yeah. See what happens um, yeah. going forward. And, and I, you know, you're both welcome back to tell us how numbers have played out <laughs> in, in the post-COVID world whenever we get there. <laughs> so Nelly Piatova and Rebecca Bowden, thank you so much for joining Fresh Head. It really was a pleasure of talking. And congratulations on your special issue.
2: Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Will. Thank you.
0: Nelly Piotova and Rebecca Bowden both work at Tampere University in Finland, be sure to check out the introduction to their special issue, which is open access. A transcript of today's interview can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. FreshEd's team includes Sherry Yang, Hong Zong, Lushik Waba, Fatih Oktas and Injung Cho. Original music for Freshhead was created by Digital Primate. Fresh Ed is an independently run podcast without advertisements, and is made possible by the support of the Open Society Foundations, NORAG, and listeners like you. Please consider becoming a monthly sponsor of Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com support. All U.S.-based donations are tax-deductible. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.